Devora Vale. I'm a life and wellness coach and the host of this podcast. Welcome to Accessing Your Best Self, a space meant for exploring the wisdom of Torah and its practical application for improving our character. So one of the fundamentals of healthy self-esteem, okay, so nice to see you, that we have been talking about is this idea that you are the, um, you are made up of positive character traits and negative character traits. And the same way that God, Hashem, gave you those positives, the same way He gave you the negatives. So the idea of Hishta'avut, of being an even balanced person, somebody who's walking the balance in terms of self-knowledge is the person who understands that the same way I shouldn't take so much credit for my positives and blow them out of proportion, which is what we would call arrogance, to the same degree I shouldn't take so much credit for my negatives and blow them out of proportion and become (coughs) depressed and stooped over and, you know, sort of despair because of those negatives that I have, because both of them equally were given to me by Hashem. And I need to learn how to find my sense of balance by not being overly moved by praise. When somebody tells me how great I am, I don't get all puffed up. And the opposite, by not being overly moved out of myself, out of my sense of self, because somebody tells me something negative about myself, or I tell myself something negative about myself. And we talked about different triggers, things that trigger us to start beating ourselves up or building ourselves up. And a lot of the triggers that we have are comparing ourselves to others. Okay? When we compare ourselves to others, whether we feel that we're greater than them, so it gives us a boost, Or we feel like, gee, I thought I was so great, but now I met her, who's so much smarter, beautiful, uh, accomplished, etc., etc. Gee whiz, I'm really nothing, I'm really nothing that great. So both of those postures, whether it's negative or positive, are indicative, indicative of a unhealthy self-esteem. Because regardless of what's going on outside you, Regardless of inner triggers that might attack you sometimes to tell you you're great or you're lousy in an, in an amplified, disproportional way, you are supposed to be getting your self-worth and sense of self from none other than God himself. Because you are, like we said, an eloka mima'al. You are a piece of God that you carry within you. And you, again, are not responsible for either your negative or positives, This is the raw material that Hashem gave you to be able to fulfill your mission in this world. And that's really where we need to be focused. Now, it doesn't mean there aren't things that we can learn from outside triggers. And we just told the story last week about the Nazir. If everybody's familiar with the Nazir, so the question that the Torah asks is, why does the Parsha of the Nazir come right after the Parsha of the Sota? So we know the story of the Sota is about a woman who's degraded because she's um, accused of ad- adultery. And the Nazir becomes a Nazir because he happens to witness this episode of her degradation. And he says to himself, you know what? Who knows? Maybe if I was in a situation secluded with a woman and had a little bit too much to drink, who knows? Maybe I could succumb to that too. And therefore, because I saw it, because Hashem, so to speak, put me in this path to see this, I'm going to put some fences around myself. I'm going to take on this Nazirut um, status and no longer indulge in any kind of wine or grape products, grow my hair, etc. And, you know, I'm just going to put this fence around because I'm going to learn from what I saw. I'm not going to say, ha, that could never happen to me, which the arrogant person might say. And I'm not going to say the opposite, which is, um, I'm so great that that could never happen to me, or there's just no way that that could ever happen to me. But rather, I'm going to learn from what I see. Okay? 
Um, and, and so that's a situation where you can actually learn something. But the first situation that we gave way back that the Rambam brings down is the story about somebody who's called a Hasid Gadol. Why was he a Hasid Gadol? Because he was on a ship one day and he was sleeping on the ship and somebody came over and urinated on him, okay? Threw heaps of garbage on him, whatever you want to call it, but in the Gemara it actually says that. And the Hasid Gadol says, this was the happiest day of my life. Now, why was it the happiest day of his life? For all my students, you remember? Because he said, I was unmoved by what he did to me. My sense of self-worth did not change one iota. I felt sorry for the guy because he's obviously not well, but I didn't feel any less of who I am because of what was done to me. So again, in a situation like that, there's nothing that we can really learn except... Right? If somebody insults us or somebody, or there's some kind of external trigger, there's, or we bang, bump into a wall, right? There's not necessarily something that we need to learn from that. But then there are, there are other situations, like with the Nazir, where we should le- learn from it. And we should, instead of, like we talked about, cheap spirituality, where we just look at somebody doing something and we say, ha, huh, I would never do that. And putting on this whole self-righteous persona, to do the real work is to say, you know what, who knows, maybe in a different situation, at a different time, in a different place, I could also succumb to something like that. Let me not be too haughty and think that I'm, you know, impervious to anything ever happening to me in that way. Um, so another example that they give in terms of making your self-esteem objective, it shouldn't be uh, a self-esteem where it's based on where I am or who I'm with. And where we learn this from in the Torah is with Parshas Noah, right? We all know the story of Noah and the flood and how he was chosen to be the only person and his family to be saved from the destruction of the world. And yet it's interesting because when they talk about Noah being a tzaddik, what does Rashi tell us? Rashi tells us that you know what? Compared to Abraham, if he had lived in the time of Abraham, Avinu, he would have been a nothing. He would have been a Gurnisht. But in the time that he lived in, in the generation that he lived in, he was somebody that was really great. In other words, compared to those low lives that he lived with, he was an incredibly great person because he was the only one that was worthy of being saved. But if he had lived when Abraham lived, ten generations later, when everybody was a little bit on a higher level and not so completely decadent, who says he would have been anything? So the Torah doesn't really tell us, well, was he great or wasn't he great? Right? What the Torah is telling us is, in this case, his greatness was relative to who, who he was living with. And that's not something you can base your self-esteem on. That compared to those people there, I'm pretty good. That's not where we're supposed to be getting our sense of self. Because you see how it can change if you're suddenly living with greater people. Oh, well, I guess I'm not that great. Noah obviously wasn't that great if he would have been compared to Abraham. So just to give you some ideas about this practically. Um, so... Tina Schoonmaker, whose work this is and who um, so generously allows me to teach her stuff, um, she told a story once about, you know, Kfishechad um, in Yerushalayim? You know that street where the Arabs live on one side and the Jews live on the other side, where Malot Dafne is, where Madashkol, um, that hotel, what's it called, Leonardo? The one that everybody's scared to stay at. Yeah, there's two that's where we stay. Right, you have to be careful. We, we, we ended up staying. We, did we stay there? Yeah. We stayed well, there I, on the Arab side? Well, we did. We stayed in Leonardo. Yeah, yeah, but that was in, where, in Jerusalem? Was it the one near yeah. Yalta? Uh, no, Tel Yeah, so anyway, there's a, there's a road there, right? And that's the road where some Arabs drove up onto the, where people were standing at a bus shelter and rammed into people sitting there. But anyway, she was saying that it's really a miracle, actually, that more things don't happen there because there's no wall, there's no guards, there's no real security. The Arabs basically live on this side of the street and the Jews live on this side of the street. Now, it happens from staying in that hotel there, which at first I was very scared to, I learned that those Arabs 
are like the Jews of Rechavia. They happen to be very wealthy Arabs. They're not interested in starting up with us. They have a great life over there. And probably anybody who rams into us on that other side is an imported Arab from some other neighborhood, right? But the point is, she said, it's really incredible that we, we live, there's these two neighborhoods. And it's a miracle that a thousand people, people are not being stabbed every day. And, and she says, you know, think about all the propaganda that the Arabs are constantly bombarded with to kill Jews, to be a jihadist, to go to heaven, right? To make money for their family. And yet some people, some of these Arabs make a moral decision not to go along with it. And she tells a story about how a Jewish woman was once crossing that street. And it wasn't too long after somebody had been hurt over there. And she paused after she started crossing because there was an Arab in a car at the red light. And she went back to the curb and she didn't want to cross in front of him. And he kept motioning to her to go and she kept motioning back, no, no, it's okay, it's okay. Anyway, um, and then she looks into the car and she sees his face and the Arab has actually started to cry. Okay? And he's crying obviously because he obviously has made a moral decision that he doesn't want to be part of what the Arabs represent. And he's broken from the fact that this woman wouldn't cross a street in front of his car for fear of her life. Okay? So even though he's living with the same temptations, the same messages and attitudes of the people that he comes from, he decides not to do it. So here's an example of, you know, if your social media is telling you to kill people and you don't listen to it, all of a sudden you're somebody very great. Okay, what is he comparing himself to? And yet in that society, to make that kind of a decision to be broken by the fact that a Jew is afraid of you is shows something very incredible about him. So again, Chazal, our sages tell us that because Noah was living among terrible people, he looked like a tzaddik. But in another generation, he would have been a nothing. So it's all relative. So in a moral, normal society that we live in, would you give people credit for not running over other people? But in a country like Israel, you might give somebody credit for that because that's a possibility that Many people are inundated with that kind of message to do something negative and you refrain from doing it. So what do we learn from this? What does this teach us about self-esteem? That we can't evaluate ourselves vis-a-vis other people. When we do that, there can, there's a problem with that. Because as I said before, Chazal never tell us what's true about Noah. You know, is he really a tzaddik, regardless of what's going on around him, or not? So it's not healthy to evaluate ourselves in this way. Now, there's another way that we can get an idea about ourselves, and it's something called dramatic foil. Anybody in the English literature major here? Okay, I am, but I never heard of this. <laughs> but dramatic foil means that if you're reading a good novel, so one of the ways that you learn about the characteristics of the protagonist is inside that same story, um, they'll put somebody, they'll put somebody who reveals what the main person is like based on somebody else in the story being completely opposite. So they won't actually tell you that the protagonist is kind and giving, but they'll have another character in the story who's the complete opposite, who's nasty and stingy. And by virtue of that person, you'll realize that the protagonist, compared to that, right, the bad guy is kind and giving. Not necessarily because they said, oh, he is kind and giving. Okay, so this is one of the ways that you bring out the personality of one person by comparing and contrasting him with somebody else in the story without actually saying it. So 
You learn about the character characteristics of the protagonist, not by the author telling you about him, but the author will put someone else in the story who has terrible meetos. And this teaches me how good the protagonist is. So let's say we're the main character in the story. Our dramatic foil teaches us something about ourselves. So for example, if a person is a very arrogant person, the dramatic his dramatic foil will be somebody much, much lower than him, so he comes out looking great. Okay? If you're somebody who, you know, is a baltsadaka and gives a lot of money, and that's how you define yourself, I'm a baltsadaka, so the dramatic foil will be somebody who's stingy and doesn't give anything, and that's who you'll compare yourself to in order to make yourself feel or look like maybe you're even more than you really are. So that's the idea of a dramatic foil. Um, so, you know, you might look in the mirror and like the way you look from an objective point of view, but all of a sudden you're at an event and you start comparing yourself to others and you don't feel as good about the way you look as you did. Oh, I'm underdressed, I'm overdressed. Oh, I have nothing to wear. I really need to get a new shaitel. I need to get some new clothes. You know, this person looks better than me. So all of a sudden you're comparing yourself to others and this is not... Okay, so who we compare ourselves to tells us something about our self-esteem. Okay, think about that. And think about this when you go into your week. Who do you compare yourself to? Do you compare yourself to people who you look up to, who seem to be greater than you on some level, and therefore you feel not good about yourself? Do you compare yourself to people who are under you in order to give yourself that boost? Who do we compare ourselves to? Gaiva, arrogance, and low self-concept are opposite sides of the same coin. Right. So in order to boost ourselves, to make ourselves feel good, Often we'll choose somebody under us, but really it's just because we have a low self-concept, not because we've actually, um, we've actually arrived at being good with ourselves. Again, at recognizing that I don't take credit for the good points or the bad points entirely, because they're gifts that were given to me. Of course, I'm a work in progress, and I'm always trying to take that home air that raw material that Hashem gave me, and make it into something greater and better. And it's something that's always in flux and always, you know, changing. But I don't build myself by putting, looking down at others or the opposite, lose my sense of self because somebody's done something or has something that's better than, than what I have right now or am right now. Is that clear? It seems like such a simple point, except that if we think about it, we're constantly doing it. We're constantly comparing ourselves to others. And we don't even know. Sometimes, you know, you'll, you'll listen in on the conversation going on in your head if you're self-aware enough, and you'll realize that you're doing it one way or the other. And again... This is a way of learning about where you're holding in terms of your sense of self-worth, which ultimately, again, the only one that we have to uh, impress, the only one that we really have to worry about in terms of whether or not we're doing the job we are meant to do in this world, is the one above, who gave us our strengths, who gave us our weaknesses, who understands what our challenges are, who knows us better than we know ourselves, Etc. Okay. All right. New topic. Okay, well, after you do the sheet, we can get into this. But in the meantime, I think I'm going to skip some of this. And I'm going to talk a little bit about, okay, the chida. Okay. Um, Okay, when you do the sheet, maybe I'll just tell you a little bit about this. What might happen is you may feel you have more negative traits than positive traits. 
When you feel you have predominantly more negative traits, you need to ask yourself why. Maybe you have more positive traits, but you're in denial as to your positives, or maybe your good traits are covered in layers of misuse. Maybe you don't think you have a nakuda of shefa, something that is overflowing in your personality, in your strengths, something that really defines you and makes you very, very special and very unique. And you have an overabundance of this. Maybe it hasn't been accessed if you don't know what it is. Because people who are accomplished, they know how to develop this nakuda of shefa, this something about themselves that is sort of their calling or their thing that makes them tick, their passion, right? The person that we said that even in a situation of being in a, in a holocaust or in a concentration camp will still want to share their bread because their nakuda of wanting to give to others is so powerful and so strong that even in the most dire circumstances, that good trait prevails, right? And then we talked about the person who has a negative trait, that even in the most beautiful and wonderful circumstances, they're on a vacation, they're in the most beautiful place, they just, their mother just made them an incredible birthday party, right? It doesn't matter, they will always find an opportunity to complain, to fetch, to say that something wasn't good enough. Okay, so on both sides, what is that? You know, in you, regardless of whether you're in a great, whether it's your most powerful trait positively or your most powerful trait negatively, what is it that comes out? Okay. Um, yeah. You should listen. You should pick out ten on each side. Ten that just call your name, and then and then if you look at the back, it tells you how. Yeah, it tells you how you're supposed to list them. Okay, let's go over this maybe again. So if you look at the back, the mito can be can be um, here. Take another one. The mito can be divided into character traits. Okay, first of all, your best trait and your least best trait are on the top and the bottom of this diamond shape. Okay. Now let's say you've picked out. Well, here they pick out uh, six. On each side, right? Six, twelve altogether. But they divide them into, on one side of the diamond, it says, these are character traits that impact on you and yourself. Bain Adam, no, yeah, no, sorry. Bain Adam Lemakon, between you and God. Okay? So let's say disciplined. Okay? That might be a mita that is very much... Uh, important in one's relationship with Hashem, right? Because we have so many mitzvahs that we have to do. There's so many difficult things that are hard for us to do. And sometimes it's a question of discipline. <laughs> Loyalty might be something between you and other people, right? How loyal are you? Or some of them might um, overlap into both. But the idea is, is that you're supposed to list, plus six would be the top. Right? Benadam Lemakom, between you and God. So here they put, between you and God, if you see the example, they put introspective, inspired, spiritual, optimistic, right? And then going down, they put fearful, sad, cynical. I don't know what that one says. Can you read it, anybody? The one after cynical? Messy. Okay, so, and those are. Teacher. <laughs> Now the one with Bain Adam Lamakom, it can also it also says says Bain Adam Atzmo, meaning it affects you. It's not necessarily about you and God, but like if I'm a messy person, maybe it gets in the way of my being able to um, accomplish because I can't find anything. And it takes me ten times longer to figure out where my notes are because I don't put them into folders, right? Or I just don't have that discipline of organizing myself. So it can impact, right, on your own relationship with yourself. The other side are relationships with, with other people. So we have giving, patient, polite, loving, and then going down to the negatives, we have jealous, uh, self-absorbed, I'm not sure, self-centered, haughty, 
competitive, right? These would all be difficult types of character traits with other people. So everybody gets it? So that's your homework. That's what you're supposed to do. Okay? Um, we'll talk more about that when we get there. Okay, so let's talk about the Chida. The Chida, who was a great rabbi, he says that the neshama of a person, that before we come into this world, the neshama, the soul of every person, chooses his own life circumstances. That after conception, the malach takes the neshama to choose its circumstances, whether it's going to be rich or poor, whether it's going to be deformed or healthy, whether it's going to be smart or dumb. Okay, I'm giving extremes here. But that you actually choose your own life challenges. And you choose some of the raw materials. Yes. I didn't know this. Yes. <laughs> this is what the Kedah says, okay? So if you chose a lot of really difficult life challenges, I like to say, it means that you're going for the gold. You know, it means that you really want to get a great seat in the next world because you basically went around with Hashem, so to speak, and you said, you know what? Give me all the tough ones, okay? Because I, I'm up to this. I think I can do this. And obviously, the greater the challenges, the greater the efforts, the greater the difficulties, the greater the reward, right? Funsara Agra. It's so hard to believe. But you know what? In some ways, it makes things feel better a little bit, right? Because you feel like it wasn't just thrown at you, that maybe you're, you knew something. Maybe your soul understood and knew something about what it wanted and what it was willing to give to get there, whatever each one of our pekalas are of what we have to deal with and what our challenges are. And of course, we look at everybody else's pekala and we say, oh, I would like theirs, I would like hers, I would, right? The story of the Jews, the people at the train station, everybody puts their bag down and the train, uh, the, they, they make an announcement, everybody can go and get anybody else's suitcase, go ahead, and everybody gets 10 minutes to go and look around and see whose suitcase they want. And the, the end of the story is that everybody goes back to their own, his own. And the reason being because we know our own pekala, we know somebody else's challenges and difficulties, we say, oh no, I could never handle that, I don't know how they handle that, I could never handle that. But somebody looks at ours and says, oh, no, I couldn't handle that. And there's no such thing as, as anybody on the planet that doesn't have some pekala. Some, some of us more, some of us less, but everybody's got them. Yeah. What I found really profound about that teaching when I, was, when I first learned it is it's also that the wisdom of whatever challenges we've chosen, the wisdom of how to deal with them comes with, with oh, it. beautiful! So that part of our neshama that is still connected, that highest part of us, it's still connected. Above, we can access that, so mm. that the wisdom and the tools and the skills that we need are always accessible to us, because it is basically our highest self that's guiding us to back Isn't to our highest beautiful. self. Beautiful. That's very beautiful, and that's really uh, very much what Esther did in the story of Purim, right? She had to kind of access a very deep part of herself to be able in the middle of the story to go into the king and make that incredible decision to throw her lot in with the Jewish people as opposed to trying to survive apart from us. But yeah, I mean, I think it's very true what Rivka's saying. We don't feel it all the time and we don't think it. And that's when we say things like, I can't do it or I've had enough. But obviously, if we chose this these challenges, we also had to have the right toolbox to be able to surmount them. And, you know, that's basically what it is. Rev. Dester says we're all given our own challenges, and at the end of our life, we basically want to crumple up the paper and throw it in the garbage and say, we did it. We, we, we did what we had to do, right? And that's a, a successful life lived. It could it be that yeah. when a person is going to be in this world, they are told what their purpose is, and so they have to choose what they think is going to help them to pass the tests, to you know, to accomplish a role in this world? When they're in this world? No, before. before. That's why they choose those things. It could because be. They, they see what they have to accomplish. You know, they're coming back to fix something. Right? Yeah. So maybe they're choosing certain things that will help them pass. Could it it be? could be, and maybe they're choosing things that, that they hope 
they'll be able to do it in one lifetime. You know, we believe in reincarnation, oh, right? Nice. Right? They're saying, you know, give me the works because I don't want to come back here again, right? And maybe every soul thinks they're up to it. And maybe we're not completely. Maybe sometimes we do have to come back again because we bit off more than we could chew. But, you know, I once asked Robertson Weinberg, Noah Weinberg's wife, after I learned about reincarnation, I said, you know, so if we get another chance, like, why should I try so hard? Right? Because, listen, I'm going to get to come back again. I'm going to get to try all over again. Why, you know, why should I get too bogged down with working so hard in this lifetime? So I just still remember, because it was so shocking to me, she just looked at me and she went, you don't want to come back again. You don't want to. Right? And when she said that, it all made sense. You don't want to go through adolescence again, okay? You don't want to go through all the pains and torments of being in this world because it's painful and it's difficult and it's really murder for the soul and the body. You don't want to do this again, so get it right. So that's where it comes from. That's where the impetus comes from if we understand and, of course, the smarter and the wiser we get, we understand how difficult this world is and, and, and how hard it is for us to continuously climb the mountain and become our better selves with all of the different things that life throws at us. But the only way we can really do it is by keeping that cord, keeping attached to the one above, right? Recognizing again, not getting bogged down by what everybody else is doing around us, you know, but by focusing always on what am I supposed to accomplish? Not what are they accomplishing? What are they not accomplishing? What am I supposed to accomplish? What did Hashem put in front of me to help me get to where I need to go for good and for negative? For easy people in my life, for difficult people in my life, for the circle one people in my life that I deal with every day, and the circle two people, and the circle three people that just come in and out of my life or enhance my life. All of these things are the materials and the tools that I need to get to where I have to go to. So the Deshama chose those challenges. Why did I choose these difficult circumstances? Only the, the Shama only chooses what is appropriate and helpful for achieving their life's purpose. So they're not going to choose wealth if it's not going to be appropriate for their life's purpose, if it's going to be an obstacle to it, if it's going to get in the way of it, right? Even though from our standpoint, why not? <laughs> Doesn't it make life easier? Well, maybe not. Maybe it would have made your life much harder. You can't even imagine. Right? Some of the bigger problems that people with wealth have with their children, with knowing how to restrain and hold back from giving too much. Right? And all kinds of other issues that can happen with wealth. Or the opposite, you know? I needed to have wealth in order to be able to achieve my purpose. So whatever we chose, it was exactly what we needed. We don't ask Hashem for Yisurim, for troubles and difficulties, and we don't ask Him for the reward. We don't say, you know, give me lots of challenges because I want to get lots of reward. We don't ask Hashem to test us. We said that in another class, right? Dovin Amalek asked Hashem to test him, and he failed. We're not supposed to ask for tests. There's enough tests without asking for more. But it's true that Yisurim... Difficulties help a person grow much more than success does. The run said that tshuva mitoch tzara, there's two types of tshuva, there's two types of ways that a person will do tshuva. Some people do tshuva mitoch tzara, meaning life has become so bad, so unbearable. There's so many difficulties. There's health problems, there's financial problems, there's tragedies, there's crisis, and a person comes back to God because he says, I don't know, I can't handle it anymore. I, you know, I've lost my money. I've lost my, you know, like the story of Job, right? The story of Eov. Hashem takes everything away from him one by one to see if, if Job is going to, you know, run away from God or whatever. The point is, is 
doing tshuva from a place of tsar is much easier than doing tshuva from a place of, 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 of tranquility. You know, when everything's going well, nobody's saying, Why me? Why are you doing this to me, God? Nobody says that, right? When they're having celebrating their son's bar mitzvah and marrying off their children or they just got a huge windfall in the bank or whatever it is, nobody's saying, Why me? Right? We only say, Why me? when all of a sudden something happens that disrupts what, what's supposed to be in our minds, the smooth road of life, you know? I think especially our generation is so fragile that we think life is supposed to be smooth and we're always shocked by the twists and the turns. And I think in past generations, they knew life was supposed to be full of twists and turns and they were always shocked by the uh, few and, and uh, short, smooth moments, you know, between pogroms that they might have enjoyed. So we have a very different, uh, a different relationship with life based on the fact that we're, you know, bombarded with social media and media that depicts this world as being idyllic. And if you only have that much money and that body size and, you know, that look and whatever it is and those perfect children and go to those schools, then your life's going to be blissful. And it, it paints an unrealistic picture so that we think, oh my goodness, what's happening? There's a blip on the radar screen here when something goes wrong. No, the blips on the radar screen are normal. That's called life. The nice pauses in between there where you get to take a breath and restore your energy, that's, you know, that's just a, a little bit of vacation. Because we all need a little vacation to, 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 to build up our energies. But that's, that's the truth. So, um, there's lots of credit, the run says, given to somebody who does tshuva when their life is going well. And Hashem gave me an incredible amount of potential because he gave me life circumstances that make me look for more on a spiritual level. When we have difficulties, it's almost like a fire underneath us that forces us to be not complacent, right? That forces us to grow. There's a book that people were reading years ago about um, know yourself, know thyself. It was a rabbi in Israel. Remember that? Anyway, he's talking about the meter of fire, that to be able to grow, a person basically has to burn the level that they're trying to move up from. That fire, he talks about earth, wind, air, and fire, and some people are made up of those four elements, and some of us are naturally more fire, more earth, but we're all composites of all four of them. And then he talks about the um, positives of it and the negatives, what you have to be careful of. But one of the positives of fire is that fire, it, it, the fire underneath a person can help them grow to the next level. And the way that they're able to do it is by, so to speak, destroying whatever complacent level they were on in order to be able to move up to the next level. They have to say goodbye. Oh, I had a great quote that I was sending around. It says, in order to explore the ocean or to discover the incredibleness of the ocean, a person has to be willing to lose. I sent it to Florida. I was I was in the lobby of the hotel I stayed in and had a big book of Jacques Cousteau and it had the most incredible pictures of fish, and it was like the whole you know story of his life with his kids on his boat with the, all, everything that he did. And every and every so often it had quotes. And one of the quotes that I love said, "In order to discover the incredibleness of the ocean." a person has to be willing to step off of the shore. And I think that's really true when it comes to spiritual growth. You know, we all have our shores that we're, we're, um, we feel very secure on, you know, that we would fear if they w it would suddenly, um, the sand would shift under our feet. But really, growth only takes place when we're in a moment of instability and insecurity, and we have, to, we have no choice but to move up to the next level move up to the next rung sometimes. That's what gets us moving, those periods of crisis.
crisis and insecurity. I also looked at that as stability, but I also looked at the shore as your past. Your past, very good. It's very hard to you keep thinking about your past. Right, and uh, it prevents it's hard you. to go into the Take ocean. a dive into, yeah. the, into the present. That's how I looked at it. That's beautiful. Yeah, yeah, there's a lot of ways you can interpret it, which is why I liked it. Okay, Robertson Haller says there's two prototypes of different type of people. Okay, there's the prototype of the chesed person, and the chesed person accrues spiritual merit through their externalized avoda. So a person who's driven by chesed, the Abraham personality, the person who loves to do and to give and to bake cakes for everybody and to be there and to visit the sick and, you know, um, to drive people and take people for rides and they use their positive circumstances to help others, right? They use their assets, whatever whatever they have in this world, to, to, to not be selfish with their assets or not be arrogant about their assets. Sorry, that's not what I wanted to say. They have all the, they, they, they want to do all this good stuff and they're only, um, and, they're, and their basic challenge is not to be selfish with all the assets that God gave them. For example, let's say they have a lot of money and they use it to do a lot of tzedakah and chesed. And their challenge is not to become gaivadik about their assets or arrogant. That could be their challenge. But what about the gavura prototype? So you've got the chesed prototype whose life is just giving and doing. And they look really good out there in the world. And everybody looks at them and says, wow, why can't I be like that? They're so together. They're always doing for other people. They seem to have all the time in the world. I can hardly find a moment in my day to pick up the phone and ask somebody who's sick how they're doing, right? So she says because some people are the Gavura prototype. And their challenge in this world is more about overcoming negativity than sharing positivity. Okay? And they're not as glamorous to other people. Okay? They're not the ones that are out there and everybody's wishing, you know, or saying, wow, how did they organize this whole dinner or this, you know, incredible charity function or she's the head of the sisterhood and she has 10 kids or, you know, they, they describe this woman in Montreal who has 21 kids. Have you heard about this woman? She's a big shatchan in Montreal. So somebody told me, I, I met, she was at my daughter-in-law's board and somebody pointed her out to me. Oh, that's the famous shatchan with 21 kids and she's also like making matches all the time. And somebody explained to me, not only does she have 21 kids, but None of her boys ever look like they need a haircut. Get what I mean? Like, like she's like CEO of a major corporation here, like that's running yeah. very efficiently, okay? So those kind of people you don't really want to, you know, compare yourself to if you're a Gavura type of person who's just trying to get out of bed in the morning, okay? So Gavura people, so what's a Gavura people dealing with? A Gavura person saying, oh, wow. Thank God I didn't cry today, or I didn't yell at my kids today, like, or I only yelled at my kids six times instead of my usual ten times, right? So that's what the Gavura person is dealing with. The Gavura people look at the Chesed type as much as being much better than they are. Wow, you're so great, you do so much Chesed, but the Gavura person is busy trying to control their anger, not losing it, getting out of bed in the morning, you know. You're looking at your neighbor who's the chesed type, and you're saying, oh my gosh, you just made two different types of soup for five neighbors today? Like, what did I do? Right? So we can't say that the chesed person is getting more schar than the gavura one who doesn't look so good to the naked eye, but who might have a tougher life or tougher midos that Hashem gave them to work with. Okay? Gavura people may be getting more schar in Olam Haba. Even more so because in this world, they're not getting any accolades. What they do doesn't look fancy. It doesn't look impressive. It doesn't get any raises or rewards in this world. But Hashem knows what that Gavura personality is dealing with every day. Whether it's their own inner work, that they're struggling with, right? They've always struggled with depression. They've always struggled, struggled with feelings of sadness or jealousy, or they had a difficult childhood, 
and there are things that they've never been able to get over, and it's a miracle that they just get out of bed and face the music every morning, right? Never mind that they, you know, were able to accomplish other things in life as well. So that person doesn't look too glamorous, but only Hashem knows. So if you're dealt a difficult hand of cards, your relationship could be deeper because you don't get a lot of public affirmation for the inner challenges that you've overcome. Okay, does everybody get this? Is this a little bit um, comforting or what do you think? What do you think of this idea? Is it true out there in the world? That's what Robinson Heller says. She said, you're basically in the chesed. Or, I mean, listen, it doesn't mean that the Gavura people never do chesed. It almost feels like... It's a little too defined. Chesed people are perfect, and yeah, the Gavura people are struggling. But I feel like most people probably have... It's true. It's like, true, I, but I guess some people do have more challenges than others. Would you say? It's hard to know. Like you said, we all choose to be... And we do. We can't, but we all meet those people that we say, oh my God, like one thing after the other. Right. I think that's true. And I think what Robinson Heller is trying to do is she's just saying that what looks good out there and looks so perfect, even though we know that everybody has stuff, that don't think that just because that looks good is necessarily better or even better than okay, somebody who's able to do very things. little. Yeah. But in Hashem's eyes, they're doing so much. Right. The chesed person might not be doing all those stuff at home. Maybe they're, um, they're doing outside of the home, but they're not doing inside what the gvura person's doing. Right. You know, maybe they're angry at their family members while the Vura person has to make sure not to get angry. Yeah. And we don't know what goes on in their home. No, but I think, exactly, that's a very good point. But I think here what Robinson Hill is doing is she's making things very black and white, but she's doing it purposefully just to give us an idea and prove a point that don't be jealous of the people who look like they have it all together. Don't compare yourself to them because you don't know right? Number one, you don't know that they might have other things. But also, let's face it, they come out looking much better than the people who can't get out of bed in the morning or shlemiels or who, you know, can't get their shalach manos together or whatever it is, shalach right? Manos? <laughs> don't say that. Don't say that. Okay. Whatever it is, I'm just saying, okay? Isn't that true? From a, from a naked eye, we give credit to people who you know, our, just seem to be able to do it all. But again, all it's saying is not really, not necessarily. And not only that, the Gevura type of personality, like we said, mitoch tsa'ar, in some ways, and I'm going to explain this better. So let's, let's just finish this because this is the same idea. So in the Gemara, there's a story about the daughter of a Roman emperor who sees a rabbi who is very ugly extremely ugly and she can't believe how ugly he is and she says to him how could such an ugly vessel contain so much wisdom and this rabbi answers her with a question he says tell me something what does your father keep his wine in does he keep them in gold or silver vessels and the daughter of the roman emperor answers him she says neither he doesn't keep them in gold or silver. He keeps them in clay vessels because clay vessels are the best container to put wine into. Inside a gold or silver container, the wine will spoil. The wine will rot. Okay, spoil. Clay vessels are not as pretty, but they maintain and don't sour and ruin the contents they are containing. <coughs> a beautiful vessel on the outside can taint the inner essence. So what the rabbi was telling her is, you know what? God made me ugly for a reason. He wanted to make sure that I would focus on my internals and not my externals, right? And we know how, what, a, what a challenge it can be for somebody who's born very beautiful, for people to see them as something more than just their body. 
and for they themselves to recognize that there's so much more to them than what they're always getting complimented for. Oh, you have such a beautiful nose. Oh, thank you. Oh, your eyebrows are perfect. Oh, I know. You know, I mean, like, wow, you're right. I didn't do anything. It just happened. You know, thank you, thank you. Right? So, you know, by living a life like that, you know, and I'm being, you know, you, you, you tend to not uh, pay any attention to what's in the vessel, what is the real you, the core of you. A beautiful vessel can taint the inner essence. So there's nothing more than tremendous success and glamour that tends to taint spiritual values. The safest way to keep our values intact is, guess what, to have not such incredible life circumstances. Glamour can taint the spiritual vessels. A vessel that isn't so perfect tends to hold spirituality more easily. Not such great life circumstances help us contain the things that are really important to us. It doesn't taint things as easily. We expect that people who are given less successful circumstances will have low self-esteem. They're not so pretty. They're not so popular. They're not so intelligent. But it's not true. It's actually not true. Rabbi Avram Tversky said, many people who suffer from low self-esteem actually have a tremendous amount of assets. There's actually a negative correlation between lots of assets and low self-esteem. The more assets that you have, the greater your potential to feel bad about yourself, to feel you're a loser. How is that? Okay, that's an interesting thing. Why is this? And they've interviewed people who have been on the top of their careers and everything else. And this is what they discover, that the people who seem to be the most capable and the people who seem to have the most assets that everybody else wants are the people who suffer, generally speaking, from the lowest self-esteem. Why is that? So a very beautiful person will say, I'm not that pretty. I'm actually, you know, see right here, I've got a little flaw right there. It's really, uh-uh, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not. A person with a good figure might think they're fat. Smart people think they're stupid. Very kind people, like uh, um, Rabbi Tversky says, the kinder the person is, the more they're upset if they're mean. And therefore, the more they think they're mean, right? This person who, you know, works very hard not to get angry. Whenever they happen to get angry, they beat themselves up because that's not, you know, that's not. So anyway, so what is it? So why is it that somebody who's very beautiful can think they're ugly? Somebody who's very smart can think they're stupid. Very kind people think they're mean. Because there's something about low self-esteem that's connected to sheker, to falsehood. Right? Low self-esteem is a distortion. We said before, right? It's a distortion. We said that somebody who overemphasizes and blows out of proportion their good points becomes arrogant. Somebody who overblows their negative points becomes damaged and despaired and doesn't have a proper sense of themselves, right? Somebody who understands that they're both and sees themselves in reality, like we said, you look in a mirror and you see yourself. But if you go into a fun house and you stand in front of one of those funny mirrors, all of a sudden you're really long and stretched out or you're really small and squished together. So this is the kind of distortions that you can think as a mashal, as a parable about yourself that are not realistic. And the goal of healthy self-esteem is to be realistic, is to realize, yes, I have a lot of negative stuff, but I have a lot of positive stuff. I'm both of those things. And I didn't ask for either of them. My job is to fix and to use the good to pull up the negative, we said, right? When you work to strengthen your strengths, the negative naturally atrophy. They begin to become weaker as opposed to directly trying to work on your negatives, which can bring you to despair. Oh, give it up already. You said you were going to stop being so such a blabbermouth and you're still telling everybody's secrets to everybody. So just give it up, right? So 
whatever that is. Okay. So something about low self-esteem is connected to falsehood. It's not true. It's distortions that create low self-esteem. The beautiful person that says, I'm ugly, is a distortion. People who have tremendous assets and negate them have the lowest self-esteem. People who most complain about their looks, guess what, are usually very pretty. When you're given an incredible asset, it's sometimes a challenge that even will lead to self-esteem, low self-esteem. Or it could be, everyone just treats me like a pretty face. Nobody understands that I have a mind in here, right? It could be your biggest challenge, the thing that's actually good about you or a positive, but instead it gives you low self-esteem. So... So yeah. We're meant to use our strengths to help us for our weaknesses to atrophy, to become less strong. When we when we strengthen our strengths, our weaknesses naturally lose. Um, okay, um, how much more time do we have? Is everybody still awake? Okay, five more minutes, okay? Is that good? Okay. So what should be our attitude to people in our lives? close family members who are critical. How do we respond to people who are close to us, you know, who might throw insults or say things that aren't very kind? How do we respond to them without losing our equilibrium, our sense of self? Parents who might criticize you, a spouse who might criticize you, even children who might say, you know, when are you going to stop doing whatever it is, you know, as they grow older and they, they... Should you be unmoved? Does being even keeled apply over here too? So on the one hand, the answer to this is it's good to care about what people who we have close relationships think about us. It's good to care about this. According to the Torah, a child is supposed to please his parent. We have the expression, The cycler says a, a, a proper woman should want to find favor in her husband's eyes. You should be trying to, right? Please those people in your circle one. So how do you put up with the criticism that might be coming your way, even as you're trying to please them or make them happy, right? What if they're not pleased? So what happens on the regish level? What do we say? Oi, I'm not a good child. I'm, I'm, I just, my, my, my mother just criticized me again. I'm, a, I'm, I'm just, I, I just never please her. I can never please her. I try so hard to please her and she's never happy with me. Oi, you know, I'm just such a terrible child. Or, you know, my husband's never happy with me. Every time I try to please him, you know, I got a new dress and he says, ugh. I don't like that. It doesn't look good on you. Whatever. I'm just using these examples. Okay? Um, but what are we supposed to do? We're not supposed to leave it here. We all know, right? Oi, I'm a lousy wife. I'm a lousy daughter. You know, oh, my kids hate the meatballs I made for dinner again tonight. I'm a lousy cook. Oh, I'll never be, you know. But rather than doing that, we have to take it from the regesh to the seichel. Instead of, oi, I'm a bad cook, maybe I need a better meatball recipe. Okay? There's room for improvement. It should come from a good place. If you're trying to make others happy and they're critical, don't put yourself down. Look at the input objectively. Use your seichel. Being even, finding that place of self-worth with spouses and parents is to hold on to the fact that my essence is good but I'm happy to learn how to be even better. Okay, there's something in psychology called codependency. What it means is when a person is enmeshed in a relationship in a way that they soak up the negative energy of the other person, this can happen very easily when you live with other people, or you soak up the positive energy of another person. And both of these things can be a problem. Okay, codependency and enmeshment. It's not a mitzvah to soak up other people's energy. You must, yeah, you understand this? I, I 
do. You do that. You soak up people's energy, or you try no, not to. I'm understanding that um, exactly. Okay. Not good. So she gives an example. She says, let's say, you know, there's a hormonal woman in your house, which could be you. <laughs> and she's up and down and she's depressed and this and that and the husband starts soaking up her energy right and he starts behaving like he's also expecting a baby or whatever <laughs> like he's also having PMS or hot flashes exactly right I care about her so much that when she's in a bad mood I am too you know if she's having a baby, I'm going to gain 40 pounds too because, you know, we're all in this together, okay? But this is not good. I can feel for you, but I shouldn't be swallowed up by you. Or the opposite. I'm only worthy when you're in a good mood. When you're in a good mood, I feel great. When you're not in a good mood, you're just sapping my energy, right? Because I become dependent on you feeding me this good mood. Now obviously, you know, someone in our close proximity who's not feeling well, who's feeling sad and down, there's nothing wrong with being there for them and asking, you know, is there something you want to talk about? You know, is there anything I can do to help? But it's very, very difficult, right, not to get pulled into it. Very difficult. Do you agree? Whether it's, and especially with our kids, oh my goodness. If you have kids that are angry or having a tantrum or unhappy with life or with their teacher or with their, it's very difficult not to get sucked into it. So this is a very difficult thing to do. And the person who's codependent says things to themselves like, Oi, I'm doing such a bad job. I must be a bad friend, a bad mother, a bad wife, a bad whatever, a bad employee. Instead, be happy to take the input, but don't let it move you to start bad-mouthing yourself. Okay, I'll just end with this little idea, and we'll move on next week. So, for example, let's say you have older parents, and very often when parents get older, and they can become very critical, right? So, the more critical they are, the more it means they need your help, and the more they need your help, they lose their filters. And so on the one hand, you're helping them more than you ever have. And you deserve the Daughter of the Year Award because of it. But instead, all you're getting from them is constant criticism. But the fact that they're negative and critical doesn't mean that you're not doing your best to please. The same thing with a spouse. If you're trying hard to make a person in your life happy, but they're in a negative, critical mode, it doesn't mean you're not doing your best. You have to look to Hashem and realize He knows how well you're doing. The Seifa could say, maybe there's something I could do differently in terms of these close relationships, but I'm not a terrible person. Don't get emotional about what the other person is sending your way. Remember, good intentions are counted by Hashem as actions. Okay? You wanted to give tzedakah, but the person who collecting who was collecting wasn't there when you came to give it to them. You intended to give them money so you get rewarded as if you did. Machshava is very important in Hashem's world. You put in a lot of effort, and even if the person that you put in the effort for is not pleased with your performance, and instead of getting a thank you, you get criticized, that's not in your hands. What's in your hands is not to take it into the regesh and say, Oi, I'm a terrible person. Oh, I'm never going to be good at that. Oi, I'm never going to make better meatballs than I already make. You know, that kid is just whatever. But to try and take it and learn from it. And the last idea here is, again, even if to the people around us we may not be performing according to what their expectations are, Hashem looks down and He recognizes those areas where it may look like we're not getting anywhere, but he's, he's measuring the efforts. So the last idea is that, you know, somebody who has a difficult child and they feel like, you know, their kid just isn't 
going to make it in this world or they're just not going to be successful. In Shemayim, the mother could get there after 120 year, 20 years, and the mother is called, you know, that she gave birth to the Gadol Hador. Why did she give birth to the Gadol Hador? Well, in this world, he wasn't the Gadol Hador, but all the efforts, meaning the greatest of the generation, but all the efforts that she put into this kid that was measured by Hashem was as if she had created this wonderful child, right? Because our efforts don't always equal the results that we want. God doesn't look at the results. God doesn't care about the results. In the world we're living in, that's all that matters. God is the only one who can look at our efforts, and that's what counts. So to the child who's taking care of parents or ill parents or somebody who's sick who they get no gratitude from. They just get berated and barraged with criticism, right? If we think and we hold on to this idea that in the next world, the woman who had such a difficult marriage and it was an unsuccessful marriage and maybe it even ended in God forbid divorce, but for all her efforts in Hashem's eyes, she might win the Aishas Hayal Award when she gets to the next world, right? Because of all the efforts and struggles that nobody else knew about except Hashem. And that's why that's where our barometer of our sense of self and our sense of equilibrium always has to come back to. Because the people in our lives and the events that happen to us whether they prick us and hurt us or whether they make us feel good are all just material for us to continue growing and developing ourselves and learning about ourselves, our strengths and our weaknesses and recognizing that the whole purpose of this world is to just keep climbing the ladder, making the efforts, not worrying too much about the results making the efforts and knowing that that's what matters to Hashem and that's how we're reaching our tachlis in this world, in this life that we're in. And God willing, we won't have to come back again. We won't have to go around the shopping mall and choose all of the different challenges that we want. God willing, we'll all be uh, um, successful this time around. And Mirz Hashem, enjoy the fruits of our labor. Thank you for listening. Chag Purim Sameach. People are saying to Helen Purim, which is amazing. Look, I'll show you. Hope you enjoyed this class. To sponsor a future class or for a complimentary and completely confidential coaching session with me as I support you in reaching your goals and actualizing your true potential, please email me at DeborahVale at Yahoo.ca. That's Deborah, D-E-V-O-R-A-H, Vale, V-A-L-E, Yahoo Boxing.